Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Amelie Foz Couture joins us today. She is the VP of Innovation at Diagram Ventures, a leading venture builder in the financial, insurance, and healthcare sectors. Amelie, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Diagram Ventures is a very interesting organization, and I'm super glad to have you here with us today to kind of explain more about the firm, the unique process that the team actually takes to developing and de-risking and bringing ventures to market. And so with that said, I would love to jump in and hear a bit about yourself and what you were doing prior to Diagram, and then we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is a bit at the intersection of product and business, I would say. I started my career in management consulting, spent a lot of time working in financial services and advising large incumbents on some of the bigger problems that they were facing. Then after doing an MBA, I really focused on early stage technology ventures. So I was part of another venture builder model out in California called BCG Digital Ventures. After that, I got really interested in product specifically. So moved back to Canada ran uh, the e-commerce platform for a Montreal-based luxury fashion retailer called Essence and really learned to see what a product looks like at scale and some of the challenges from that and wanted to come back into the early stage venture building. So that's what brought me to Diagram to help lead the innovation function. And you said you wanted to get back to the early stage building. And I think that is a perfect segue into explaining what Diagram Ventures is specifically. The way we think of ourselves is really as a venture builder. Our model is to deploy capital on early stage ideas that we discover, nurture, de-risk internally, and then match with world-class entrepreneurs. And really the key to the model is to create an ecosystem that provides unfair advantage that allows us to discover ideas and earn insight in a particular sector of fintech, insurtech, and health tech, and accelerate the path to market for those ventures so that we create an overall better risk return model for the entrepreneurs that we work with and for our investors. In the accelerating the path to market and with creating this ecosystem, what's the philosophy that you utilize to attain these goals? I think a big part of it is really that unfair advantage that I mentioned. So what we've tried to do is create a network of investors that include Portage Ventures, but that also include several individual LPs that are really knowledgeable about the industries that we work in and utilize that network to help the founders that we ultimately work with and to help the path of the companies that we launch, right? So in financial services, insurance, and health tech, there are a lot of problems that are really complex to solve and often really difficult for outsiders So an entrepreneur that doesn't have decades of experience in the space to really crack, we believe that a lot of the best models really bring together knowledge from the industry and from people that deeply understand the space with a tech first entrepreneurial lens. And that is ultimately what we're trying to achieve with most of the ventures that we're launching. 
So Diagram is a venture builder. And at the same time, it's essentially a venture firm where you do make investments into these companies. And it's more so with a hands-on approach, correct? Exactly. So at a high level, the way it works, we have a couple of really key functions within Diagram. We have the founder function, which is led by Megan, that is really focused on finding the best potential entrepreneurs that have launched and scale ventures and might be looking for their next venture or adventure. And we hope to attract those people to work with us. We have the innovation function, which I lead, which is really focused on trying to find ideas that are qualified, that are de-risk, that we believe have great potential so that we can match those ideas with those entrepreneurs. And we have an acceleration team that works once the companies are launched to really help the entrepreneurs focus on what they love, which is to build their business, to build their product, to interact with their clients and customers. And so they take care of a lot of the back office functions that are critical but that can sometimes be a large volume of work on top of an already complex journey. That's actually very interesting. So I'm curious to hear with a traditional VC, there's typically sweet spots as to ideal check sizes that they like to write certain stages in the life cycle that the venture is at. So what would you say the equivalent is for Diagram Ventures? I would describe it in two ways. I think in terms of stage, we are the earliest possible stage, right? So we are even before the pre-seed, we are really day zero trying to come up with the idea internally and take it to a point where we feel it's worth a pre-seed investment. We typically lead that pre-seed investment. So something in the range of 250K. And then we would lead a seed investment and accompany the team through to series A, at which point usually there's an external lead investor that comes in. So we're very, very early stage in terms of how VCs define that. I think the other piece is our sector focus. So we are, as I said, primarily fintech, insurtech, and what we call health tech, which is really the intersection of healthcare and well-being. And that is really defined by the areas where we believe we have unfair advantage that we can bring to our founders, right? So our collection of investors are really concentrated in those verticals. And so those are the places where we think we can deliver on our value proposition of a better risk-adjusted return. Now, being at the earliest stage and then on top of that, leading the investments at the pre-seed as well as seed, typically the earlier stages are the most risky stages. And so with this being a firm that specializes in this, I'm quite interested in hearing how you think about de-risking and what your process of de-risking is. It's interesting because in early stage venture, a common approach is what is often called kind of spray and pray. So you make a lot of bets, you make a lot of small checks, and some of them are bound to work out. And that's a fine approach that's worked well for lots of folks. But we believe that we're trying to make something different, right? So we're trying to concentrate our bets and invest more time up front to really make sure that the idea is qualified and it's de-risked, quote unquote. There's never zero risk, but we do as much as possible to make sure it's a solid idea idea and we have a path to market before we match that idea with a founder. So our approach to de-risking is, I would say, inspired really by the lean startup methodology, which is now obviously a very well-known book published almost 10 years ago. But the idea is really iterative sort of testing and learning and proving hypotheses as we go. So we start with a really broad lens of our six key investment criteria, and we make a hypothesis as to what 
what we think this idea will be against all of the investment criteria. And over time, we do various rounds of secondary research. So just understanding the market, understanding the space, sizing the market, moving into primary research. So actually speaking to customers, clients, experts, and eventually doing in-market testing to really convince ourselves that the idea is qualified, that there's early signs of product market fit, that the business model works, and so on and so forth. Let's say we were to dig into the de-risking a bit further and kind of maybe segment it into core areas that you feel are super important in thinking through when de-risking. How would you segment these? At a high level, I mean, maybe I can talk a bit about our investment criteria because I think that frames the approach. And then, of course, different types of companies play out in different ways, right? But the investment criteria are the same really across the board. And the first one is pain points, understanding how critical is this topic for the customer, for the client? Do we have an earned insight around the pain point? We look obviously at TAM. So we look for a large and growing market. We look at timing. Timing is a really critical one that's sometimes difficult or nuanced to totally understand, but why is this idea ready now? Why has it not been done before? Or why has it not been successful before? And why is now a good window to launch? We have a really key criteria around our unfair advantage that I was talking about. So do we feel that as Diagram, we are better positioned to help this company succeed than another investor or someone else that might be looking at the same opportunity? And then we look at positive impact. So we want to make sure that whatever we're launching is going to be a win-win model that's going to create value for everyone, right? So for the customers that use it, the business partners and the stakeholders that might be interacting with the company. And we look at a tech-first solution. So we want to make sure that it's a business that at scale can have an attractive margin profile and where technology can really 10x the experience. And last but not least, we obviously look at competition and defensibility. So do we think we have an edge that's differentiated to bring to market? So that's really how we evaluate the investment opportunity at a high level. In terms of de-risking, of course, when you're talking about a B2C product versus a you know a more B2B product, it's quite different. And that's a very big segmentation, but that's sort of the more simple way that we think about it, right? So for a B2C product, we obviously do a lot of user testing, user interviews early on in the process, but really the most critical step is the in-market test that we would do. So oftentimes my team will work with the founders to stand up you know, an early landing page or an early version of the product product and test different acquisition channels, different acquisition techniques and tactics to really understand a couple of things. First, is there a sign of product market fit? So we're putting this on the internet. Are people gravitating to it? Are people engaging with the value prop that we're painting? And are we getting signs that there's interest for this product from the segments that we thought it would speak to? So that's just a general product market fit assessment. And then we also use that to understand the unit economics, right? Because for many B2C, businesses really critical for us to understand what is the rough CAC, so customer acquisition cost range that we can expect in this category? What is the willingness to pay that we can observe for this value prop in this segment? And does the math uh, make sense and create a financial model that's viable for the business? And so we'll often spend a couple of weeks running campaigns, trying to optimize campaigns to really see what does an early optimized CAC look like? And is that a viable business? model.
So that's the B to C side. Okay. On the B to B side, it's obviously a little bit different because for a piece of software, a piece of technology that's sold into an enterprise, many enterprise SaaS companies do have direct acquisition, but a lot of times that's not the main channel, right? So what we want to do is go and talk to the client and sort of mimic an enterprise sales channel to understand what would the sales cycle look like? Again, what is the willingness to pay and who is the ultimate buyer of this product? product that we're considering building. And so the approach there is typically, again, do a lot of primary research and have more informal conversations to understand the stakeholders, the clients, their pain points, but eventually mimic a sales cycle, right? So try to engage prospective clients, explain the vision that we have for the product and the company and get them to sign up to be an early partner, an early pilot customer, potentially even you know sign on as an early client free product. And that really helps convince us and the founders that there's product market fit, there's pull there, there's willingness to pay. And that's a really big element in de-risking the thesis for a B2B play. In addition to de-risking, what else is most critical to venture building? My focus is obviously on innovation and on the ideas, but I think the team is by far the most critical element of success, right? So my job is to try to find an idea that we think has potential, but as we know, it's all in the execution. So once we match that idea with a founding team, it's in their hands and we're really betting on that team to evolve it, to pivot it and to bring it to market. And so I would say the critical other piece is really the founders. And as I mentioned, we're building a function on the founder side to continue to grow our community of prospective founders, continue to engage with individuals that show high potential to lead a diagram company. And over time, we're working to refine and understand through benchmarking, through conversations with other investors, through conversations with experienced founders and leveraging research that we've done in our network, what are really the critical criteria for an early stage founder to be successful and trying to design a process to assess founders against those criteria. So that in itself is really an art and a science, and you can go really deep in that aspect of the recipe. But I think the core of it is that we invest a lot of time getting to know our founders upfront. We go through some psychometric tests that we've developed, several rounds of conversations to understand what is interesting to them, what are their spikes. And we really spend a lot of time in that founder idea matching, which is so critical. And we were just talking about kind of the B2C versus B2B de-risk profile. And I think in many ways, something similar applies to our thinking about the team. So we have some basic criteria that we think apply to any early stage founder and, and would help make them successful. But we also spend a lot of time thinking about specifically for this business idea and its characteristics, what are some of the spikes that might be really useful to have in a founding team? And an example of a spike could be, you know, if we have a business that is B2C, very product focused, that's going to require direct acquisition, we might say for this, we really need a spike in the founding team around product. We need someone who's going to be obsessed with building a fantastic experience for the end client. And we need a spike around growth and someone who's experienced at working with direct acquisition channels and scaling that function and really optimizing. And we really think about it in terms of spikes, not in terms of individuals, right? So a spike could be found in one individual that would bring multiple 
multiple aspects of expertise to the table, or it could be, you know, a CEO that is specialized in product, for example, complemented by a very strong head of growth in the case that I mentioned. So that's really how we think about the teams. And you know, I think it's a really critical step in the recipe to make sure we match the right people with the right ideas. Okay. When thinking through what about a team's ability matters most to you, it seems that you're really connecting these spikes with the type of company that's being developed. And just to clarify, a spike is more so a skill set or an attribute. How would you specifically describe a spike? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that's an industry standard term. That might be an Amelie term, but the way I think about it is a combination of experience and sort of discipline expertise. When you're working to build and scale an early stage venture, there's always a lot of things that are happening for the first time. In general, it's even more difficult if you're learning how to, you know, acquire customers online for the first time, or you're learning how to sell software into an enterprise for the first time. So what we really try to do is find folks that can bring experience and expertise in those types of spikes that we think will be critical to the success of that specific idea. And what's interesting is a lot of times they don't have to be deep experts in financial services, for example, because we think that's an area where we might be able to bring insight and accelerate their learning. But if it's a B2B product or business, we really typically gravitate to founders that have experience in enterprise sales and are able to build partnerships and be client facing in that context. I see. When thinking about these ideas and these ventures and developing them in market, there are many signals that I believe are used to help refine these ideas. And so I'm curious to hear how and in what ways these founders help to refine these venture ideas as they develop into the market. It's a really good question. I mean, it's an iterative process, right? So again, my team's job is to shepherd the idea in the early days into something that we think is at least worthwhile to pitch to founders. And that process in itself is really interesting because it's a test for us, right? If we have an idea that we think is strong, but we take it to our founder community and we get feedback that there's some questions or some things that are not resonating, that in itself is a really good first filter for my team and I to think about, okay, is there way we can make this more compelling? Or is there insight in the feedback that we're hearing that changes our investment thesis? But also as we develop the idea, we work closely with the founders throughout the pre-seed stage, right? So when we put out a test to assess product market fit, we want to make sure that that reflects the vision of the founding team that's coming on board in terms of the value prop, the positioning that they see for the idea. And so typically our founders are involved and they come on board before the seed investment. And they're really conducting those tests with support from the team, but really progressively taking ownership of the vision and shaping the direction that the tests go. At this stage, there are so many factors that are considered. And I believe you had mentioned it earlier, timing is an extremely important aspect. And with COVID and this economic environment, this definitely is a catalyst. So I'm curious to hear some ideas that you're most excited about going forward that the timing may be most conducive to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because there's a couple of different potential starting points for an idea, right? So at times we might get an inbound idea from, for example, some of our LPs, some of our partners that see a very specific pain point that they experience. And they come to us and say, we have this issue. Our finance function has this issue. Whatever business unit has this issue, is this something you've looked at? Maybe there's an opportunity to build a business around it. And that 
that is really starting from a specific pain point, a specific idea. We love when that happens, but it's not the only source of ideas, right? We are also a very thesis-driven investor. And so we are constantly you know, working with Portage and listening to what's happening in the market and observing shifts that might create opportunities. And typically shifts are tied to that timing investment criteria that I mentioned, where especially in financial services, there's, you know, there could be regulatory changes, there could be competitive dynamic changes, macroeconomic changes that make the timing right for something that may not have been right before. And so that's something we pay a lot of attention to. And COVID has been the sort of ultimate timing catalyst, at least in my lifetime, I think that's been very significant. And it's still unfolding. So it's difficult to have, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball. I'm sure lots of people do. It's difficult to have a decisive position on what the outcomes are going to be. But certainly we're starting to see some signals that I think are interesting to observe and interesting to build off of to create ideas. And some of those are, you know, one of the themes that we're really interested in right now is around caregiving and care coordination with a couple of different lenses. I think depending on the the numbers and the stats that you look at, somewhere between one in four or one in five individuals in North America, adults are the primary caregiver for either a senior or a dependent or family member that has special needs. And this is a really significant scale of an issue. A lot of that work is unpaid. It's done, obviously, you know, outside of working hours as something that the caregiver wants to do because it's a family member or it's someone that they care about. But at a macroeconomic level, it creates a lot of pressure on those individuals that are also employed, on the employers of those folks. And it's, I think, a societal problem that's going to have to be solved in the coming years and decades if we want to move past this challenge. And so this is a theme we've gotten really interested in because as you can imagine, COVID has really shined a light on some of these issues with, you know, some of the terrible situations that we've seen in long-term care homes. Senior care is really on the agenda. And I think the public sector, but also families are thinking very differently about how they can ensure that senior members of their family are safe and are able to age at home as much as possible. And that's creating a lot of opportunities. Uh, Similarly on childcare, I mean, I think a lot of parents have been struggling to work from home, care for their kids, you know, while being on Zoom calls all day. And that has really, again, shined a spotlight on working parents and some of the issues there. And so we think caregiving is a broad theme that has a lot of promise. It's not completely new. There are a lot of interesting companies that are already operating in this space. But again, for us, it's really thinking about the timing. And with this being higher up on the agenda of individuals, of families, of policymakers, but also of employers. We think there are some interesting opportunities to innovate with new models in that space. In regards to the caregiving, that's actually super interesting. I'm curious to hear, are there any other things that do come to mind? I mean, there's always lots of different themes floating. I think one of the other ones that we've been spending a lot of time on this past year has been the theme of diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically as that relates to enterprise software or enterprise opportunities. I think, as you know, from our portfolio, last year, we seeded a company called Novisto in the ESG space that is really on a mission to help companies better manage the ESG reporting process and the ESG data that they collect, publish, and report on. And so ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Reporting. So 
it's really a framework to think about, sometimes referred to as a triple bottom line. So how do we think about the impact that private sector companies are having beyond just the financial reporting? So everything around non-financial reporting. As you can imagine, for a company to produce financial statements, for example, is you know something that companies have been doing for a very long time, right? There's a finance function, there are accounting standards that are defined. And the world of non-financial reporting in the future, we think will be similar, right? It will be structured, there will be standards, there will be platforms, but it's still developing. And so that's really the opportunity that Novisto is tackling. I see. And I think that was a case where we really saw ESG having a moment, you know, in the last two, three years and becoming higher on the agenda of the C-suite of many companies. And our assessment is that diversity, equity, and inclusion is having potentially a similar trajectory and becoming higher on the agenda of many C-suite executives across industries, which obviously personally for me is something that's exciting to see. I also think is an exciting opportunity space as a venture builder for us to think about what are those sometimes newly established chief diversity officers or functions going to require in terms of tooling to really deliver on their mission? And is there an opportunity to build something new to support them as this theme is growing in importance? So this is a space we've been spending a lot of time on trying to understand the pain points of chief diversity officers and the functions that they lead and understand if there's opportunities in the data space, employee resource groups, recruiting, analytics, lots of different, very big pain points to tackle. And I think lots of opportunity in that space. Excellent. Okay. Well, Amelie, thank you so much for the time. That brings this episode to a close. I truly appreciate you being here with us today. My pleasure. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas or raised your spirits during these challenging times. If you found this to be valuable, then sign up to our newsletter called Hive People. Go to hivepl.vc and sign up to join the community. Likewise, join the conversation on Twitter at hive underscore vc or Instagram at hive.vc. Finally, please like and comment on the podcast through your favorite podcast platform as that helps others find the conversation. All the best, Douglas Owusu.